Greetings, everybody, and, and welcome to the first installment of Going Nuclear with Justin Hewn and myself, Trevor Hall. And this is the uh, well, first episode of the extension and rebrand into Clear Commodity Network. And we made this announcement right before the holidays about publishing a series of new podcasts focused on the commodity sector and obviously Going Nuclear. Who else to tag team this endeavor with me than uranium insider himself justin hewn justin my friend uh here we go hey i'm excited trevor i'm i'm really pleased to be uh doing this with you and i've always enjoyed our interviews in the past on mining stock daily and um there's never a shortage of of news items and and fundamental developments i mean it's on a daily basis pretty much yeah for yeah. the uranium space and nuclear space so uh happy to be doing this with you yeah good to be here yeah well who else to better invite on for our first guest later in this episode than john champagli of sprott physical uranium trust they had just an incredible uh foundation of a year last year so we're going to talk to john about last year and really kind of his thoughts going forward. He just came back from a conference in the United Kingdom on nuclear energy, so I'm sure he's going to have a lot of insight as well going forward. So we'll table that conversation with John here in just a moment, but let's take a, let's take a quick look at a few news items here in the nuclear energy sector. Um, there's a few bullet point items we got to cover, but first there's a big news. I, I don't remember when this came out, mid-December, early December, about the U.S. achieving uh, net energy gain via nuclear fusion, uh, you and I have had a couple chats on and off about this. But you know, Justin, for the listeners, what exactly does this mean? But yet, why should we maybe be hesitant about the, you know, how progressed we can get using fusion? Uh, fusion is one of those uh, one of those technologies that has been. Um, 10 years away from being commercially viable for the last 50 years. Um, it's, it's, it looks, it's very exciting. Um, I do think it holds promise for the future, but I think it's a very, very long ways away. Uh, and this most recent development essentially is um, that the energy contained within the laser that is utilized to excite the, um, the uh, uranium atom is... Uh, was the the net energy achieved from the excitement of that atom um, was greater than the energy contained within the laser. However, that fat is not factoring in the total energy for uh, the actual generation of the laser, um, let alone the facility itself. And so, um, it's it's a good step in the right direction, but I think that it's it's so long ways away that honestly, it's. Um, I think that fusion developments like this, while they're exciting and I think that they hold promise for the future, I think that they're actually detrimental to uh, to the fission story, which is, in my opinion, far more exciting, and it's right now. Um, so if, if you believe, like I do, that uh, it is for the benefit of humanity to move in the direction of an energy-efficient future, um, especially when it comes to clean energy, then I think uh, the development in the, and the expansion of fission right now is, is, is really important. And so um, I hope that uh, hopes for Fission's commercial viability doesn't slow down or stop Fission development is really kind of my grand takeaway. Uh, this is a topic you and I are going to pursue hopefully in episode two next month. And so there's some kind of prep work underway in the background here to try to get a really good source of information 
uh, on this fusion news. But, you know, I'm with you. I mean, not necessarily holy grail of energy yet. Uh, there's going to be a long way to go. And I was watching some videos about just containing uh, this energy and, and how it's produced was just incredibly remarkable and incredibly expensive. So why not, you know, really focus on things we know work now such as fusion uh, and i think obviously a lot of a lot of countries are starting to come around once again here it's almost funny how these cycles work uh, you know you and i have talked about uh, you know countries like germany going uh, going and, and kind of backtracking their ideas of shutting down nuclear reactors but it hasn't stopped actually uh, neighbors belgium have they've reached an agreement uh with uh with a, a french company to to keep their nuclear, a couple of their nuclear reactors up and going and increasing their lives by another 10 years. So that's good. Yeah, that is good. And I, I should correct myself. I believe it's a hydrogen atom that's excited by the laser in the, in the fusion development. But um, yes, I, I completely agree with you. Let's keep um, allocating some funding and effort towards furthering the fusion technology, but let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater and let's continue to move forward with what is working right now. Um, but yes, as far as Belgium goes, it's, it's so interesting. It's, it's obviously a positive thing that they're extending these two reactors. Um, this is just months after an early retirement of Doyle three, um, with the energy minister in Belgium claiming now we have one less nuclear bomb facility, mm -hmm. manufacturing facility in the country. Um, a few months later, extending these two reactors either way, very, very good sign. And honestly, this is just, uh, this is just a, a, some policymakers basically doing some simple math and realizing that they could not shut these down without ha triggering massive spikes in energy costs. So um, happy to see logic prevail there. Germany is still, uh, you know, Germany is, is doing what Germany does, unfortunately. So we'll, we'll have to see as those last re, uh, three remaining reactors that are operating now in Germany are set to be uh, permanently shut down on, in April of this year. Um, there's going to be a lot of, uh, of, of protesting and a lot of uh, work done by the nuclear advocates to try to uh, save those plants and keep them extended for a longer period of time. We'll have to see how that goes as of, as of this moment. Not really sure. Uh, to the north of Belgium, Sweden, they're preparing legislation to allow the construction of more nuclear power stations for their electricity production. Uh, this is really interesting. On Mining Stock Daily, I think it was earlier this week, I had a discussion with Garrett Ainsworth of District Metals, and they actually uh, 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 looking to acquire a, a big uranium, well, and vanadium project called the, the uh, Viken Deposit. There, but he mentioned in our interview that they are awaiting uh, kind of uh, to backtrack on this moratorium on uranium mining they have in Sweden. But so this, so it, it, with this headline about the construction of more nuclear power stations, and it, it's, it appears that Sweden is really trying to localize their resources not only for energy but also for raw materials. Uh, you can see it almost appears that that is the direction that the Swedish government is going as far as really going full blast with uh, localized uranium production and to bolster, obviously, their hydro and, and renewable energy. Yeah, Sweden's done a bit of a 180 when it comes to nuclear. They actually shut down a perfectly operable reactor about two years ago. Um, that, that decision kind of came down to the wire. So uh, the fact that they're flipping and, and looking into building new nuclear is, again, another sentiment shift. And there's multiple countries that are kind of undertaking a similar sentiment shift. 
And uh, did you hear the news out of South Korea? So let's go over to Asia. South Korea is actually putting more of effort into their uh, zero carbon using nuclear power. Now, that's a 180 as well. It is. Yeah. The, the prior administration in South Korea was um, was was sticking with a nuclear phase out plan. So there there was a reactor that construction began, um, I believe it was in 2014, that was halted in 2017 with the previous administration. As soon as this new administration came into power um, last year, I believe it was, or maybe late 2021, if I recall correctly, they pretty much immediately reversed course and, 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 and continued the final stages of that construction. That plant has since connected to the grid over the last 60 days, and there's three more on the way. And so, and they're also looking into into further nuclear new construction builds in the country, as well as South Korea is a is a powerhouse in terms of nuclear exports um, and, and building nuclear globally. So, very good to see them uh, reverse course and, and and embrace nuclear again. So, a lot of a lot of news items out there, specifically with the you know, country's production of electricity using nuclear power. Uh, but Justin, I, one of the things you and I need to discuss uh that's really important to me actually because i just not as educated in this process as you are so i'm going to rely on you to kind of walk us through but this goes on the back of uh author and geopolitical strategist peter zion he was on the joe rogan show i think it was earlier uh this week or last week and he, he got a lot of pushback after that episode was published on the Joe Rogan experience for a number of things he said. And, and not just with uranium. That's what we're going to focus on. But there was a lot of obviously pushback from the uh, Bitcoin and crypto crowd as well on the things that he mentioned. But listen, I, I want to preface this conversation with you, Justin, that I have a tremendous amount of respect for Peter Zion. I've read his books. I get his emails and uh, I consume a lot of what of the content and things that he says and has written. And, and it, when, it, when it comes to what he said about uh, nuclear energy, he got into some of the micro, you know, the micro uh, workings of nuclear energy. And I'm just not as educated in that aspect to know if he was right or wrong. All I just saw the reaction was online and most predominantly on Twitter. You know, can you help me and the listeners walk us through what he said where this pushback came from, and really, in your mind, what was maybe misread, misrepresented, and what is should have been said, or you know, what is factual, I guess. Sure, um, he he's definitely an interesting character, and I've I've appreciated a lot of his takes, especially when it comes to geopolitics. I think he has a very wide-reaching knowledge base. Um, while at the same time, while I was watching his take on nuclear. All I could really think about was, you know, you don't have to have an opinion on everything. It's okay to say, I don't know once in a while, you know, um, and I try to remember that myself. If I really don't know the answer to something, I rather than trying to force uh, an, an uneducated opinion, I'll just say, yeah, I don't really know about that. Um, you know, when people ask me, do I think the broad market's going to have a crash in the next three months? It's like, I'm not going to tell them yes or no. I'm going to say, yeah, I don't really know. Uh, and that's okay. It's okay to not have uh a precise opinion on absolutely everything. Um, with that said, nuclear advocates are very impassioned people. And <laughs> when somebody has a um, an opinion that is so wide-reaching as the Joe Rogan podcast, the nuclear advocates are going to come out and correct uh, correct that person, you know, uh, every single time. So this, this clip that was shared around is like a minute and a half long, and there's a number of takes <clears throat> that I think... 
Um, I think he got a couple of things right, but I think for the most part, there's some some very confused elements to to his stance. So first of all, he basically prefaced this um, multi-pointed uh, uh, take on nuclear with stating that he is largely pro-nuclear. Right. So that's kind of that, that's the basis for for where he stands. So that's obviously positive, but. So uh, the first take is, uh, which I think is actually probably the most accurate take that he's had uh, within that clip, was that it takes seven years to build one nuclear power plant with no regulation. We don't have that kind of time. Okay, so um, does it take a long time to build a nuclear plant? Yes, it does. Seven years? That's a pretty decent assessment. Can it be done faster? Yes. The Japanese, when they were really rocking in the early 2000s, we're building advanced boiling water reactors in three years. Hmm. These are large, you know, thousand, close to thousand megawatt reactors. Um, absolute marvels of engineering. It can be done much, much faster than that. It also can take much longer. Uh, it can take, you know, 15 plus years in jurisdictions like uh, like we have uh, with the Vodal plant being built in Georgia. It's it's taken, it's way over budget and way, very long. So that's, if there's any critique of nuclear, that is that has some historical accuracy it's that it can take a very long time to build but it's not every case um the south koreans you know built the uh the baraka plant in in the united arab emirates very quickly that was that was you know six years something like that to get that up and running that's a monstrous plant very efficient so it can be done quickly and efficiently it doesn't always get done quickly and efficiently it depends on the jurisdiction the red tape and all of that <clears throat> okay here's the second point there we don't have that kind of time. I absolutely hate these types of statements. I think, I think, panic over whether it's climate, um, whether it's carbon, whatever it might be. I think only does harm. Um, I, I don't think panic about these things is helpful whatsoever. And so, because it it limits it limits your options. If you think if you think the world's going to end in seven years, you're not going to take the steps to do what likely is going to be a massive benefit from humanity in the next decade, which is expanding nuclear. So I despise that take. And he's obviously not the only person to have that type of language. But we don't have the time is probably the most damaging rhetoric when it comes to anything. Yeah, Go ahead. I, 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 I tend to agree with you. It did seem a little bit hyperbole. It made me question when he did say that. I was like, well, why don't we have that kind of time? He didn't put any context behind the time frame, if it was more environmental or if it was more macro or I, I, I guess there, 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 right. there, there, there should have been a conversation, you know, and Joe Rogan is a great interviewer, but I think yes. if, 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 if I was to be doing that, that question, I, I would have stopped right there and be like, why do we not have that? Why? Why? why do we not have yeah, that? Yeah. And to be fair, to be fair, I didn't hear if there was a preamble prior to this, uh, to this clip where they were discussing, either climate change or energy security, whatever it might be. I, I don't know what led to that comment, but I think that's a very, very damaging comment. Um, you know, it's like the, the green nuclear deal, the green nuclear deal, that's a Freudian slip, the green new deal language that came out what, three or four years ago that was literally talking heads saying the world will end in 10 years because of carbon. Um, it's just, it, it's such a damaging, damaging rhetoric on so many levels. So I, I, I really despise that he said that either way, let's move on. Yeah. SMRs look really promising, but they don't exist yet. Once we build one of those, it's probably a 10 year process to build out the supply chain to produce them in volume. That's what, that's um, what Peter said. Yes. That's what Peter said. Um, so yeah, I tend to agree. They do look very promising. Do they exist yet? Uh, China is about to connect to the grid, the first SMR. 
Um, so uh, they're obviously moving quickly on that. It's going to take the West a bit longer. You know, the first SMRs are set to come online in the US and Canada in the late part of the decade. So we're talking about, you know, five, six, seven years. Um, will it take another 10 years to build out the supply chains to mass produce them? No, it won't. Um, the supply chains are going to be um, built out to, prior to the construction of the first ones. Um, so we're already seeing companies like New Scale, um, companies like X Energy line up the supply chains to be able to produce these. Mm. So will it take time to get you know to get all the kinks worked out and really ramp up production and mass produces? Of course. Will it will it be 2040 before that can happen? Absolutely not. This situation with SMRs could really snowball. <clears throat> um, I'm going to try to go quickly because I know we've got a time crunch here. Um, Okay, so Joe Rogan says, but wouldn't it be wise to start moving that direction now if you're broadly pro-nuclear? And this is my favorite, Zion's response. <clears throat> the issue is, <clears throat> this is a quote, until we solve the fuel containment issue on the back end once it's spent, and then he kind of gets stumbled a bit, and he says, the chemistry to reprocess spent fuel exists, but results in weapons-grade plutonium. So to do this at scale, we have to produce a civilian weapons-grade plutonium disposal management system. Right now, they leave it in spent fuel rods and put it in a pool until the end of time. All right. <clears throat> so plutonium is actually created in the fission process. <clears throat> so part of the fission process of uh, fissioning uranium atoms produces plutonium. <clears throat> when those spent fuel rods are removed from the reactor core, about 1% of the spent fuel is plutonium. Now, those spent fuel rods, in most cases, spend a few years in a cooling pool where a lot of the excess heat is, is, uh, uh, is taken off of the rods and the, and the water is an incredible radiation buffer. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, you can actually do laps in a cooling pool without having radiation exposure, um, swimming. Wow. In fact, they were swimming in, in, uh, in cooling pools, you know, back in the fifties in the first reactors. <laughs> uh, so, so like, it's like seven centimeters, uh, cut of water cuts the radiation in half. And so the cooling rods at the bottom of this pool, by the time you get to the surface, there's no radiation. Um, so a few years is spent in the cooling pools. After that, the uh, spent fuel rods, generally speaking, are placed into uh, long-term storage casks. These are cylindrical casks that are made up of, of thick steel and concrete, where in the United States, those casks are actually stored um, at the facility that's producing the nuclear energy. In some countries, like in Norway, um, they're, they're working on underground, underground disposal. So these casks are actually buried deep in the ground where the geology is, is such that there basically will never ever be a problem with this. They bury them in clay and concrete and they set it so that it will never have to be managed by a human being for the, until the end of time. Now, with that said, the radioactivity lasts a very long time among, with these spent fuel rods which is why people tend to think that the waste is a problem. The waste is not a problem. The waste has never been a problem. There is not a single death in recorded history in 70 years of civilian nuclear having to do with nuclear waste. Not one. There, the waste isn't a problem and won't be a problem. And so to his point about uh, reprocessing, yes, that technology exists. The French use it now. It's called MOX fuel, mixed oxide. And what they do is they actually separate out the plutonium from the uranium, from the depleted uranium in the, in the spent fuel rods. They utilize that plutonium, put it back in with uh, depleted uranium. So they'll actually take uranium that's depleted from the bulk of its U-235 fissile isotope from enrichment tails, add some plutonium to, to it, 
fabricate fuel out of that, place that back in the reactor. The French are doing that now. So yes, the process of reprocessing does create plutonium, but that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to get the plutonium to utilize it in the recycled fuel. Mm -hmm. So the French are doing this. The Japanese were building facility. I think they're going to continue with that so that they can use mi mixed oxide fuel as well. So the plutonium is not really a problem. Yes, it exists in spent fuel rods, but we already know how to deal with that. There is a civilian uh, waste management system in place right now for the plutonium that's part of the spent fuel. And with the reprocessing, we want the plutonium. And so that's, that's the process that's in, that's in place that I think he really missed uh, with that point. And I, I think it's good to have this conversation. And that's so much information for me to, to understand. In fact, I might have to go back and listen to what you just said a couple of times here, Justin. But that's why we're doing this podcast because – you know, you, you you've got this information, and I, and I and I do think it's important to understand where the pushback from you know that segment of that Joe Rogan Peter Zion interview was coming from, and it needs to be out there. Again, tons of respect for Peter. I, in fact, I, I admire him very much, and anybody that can yeah. go into Joe Rogan and have a big conversation for two hours and get a tremendous amount of pushback for one two minute segment. Um, you know, people were watching and, you know, you're right. Uh, sometimes this nuclear energy crowd and uranium crowd, uh, when they see falsities, they're going to call that person out on it pretty dang quickly. Yeah. And I think the reaction has a lot to do with the reach of that audience. And, and especially the point about the reprocessing and the spent plutonium is like when he said they would just stick it in a pool till the end of time. And then Joe Rogan's response was, oh, boy. Yeah. Like, you know, like he was shocked in a negative manner from an absolutely false statement about what actually happens with the spent fuel. So um, that that point was unfortunate. But, yeah, I agree with you. I think he makes some intelligent comments in other in other aspects. And, and to have a very long conversation with Joe Rogan, um, you know, that's that's certainly accolades to him. So I think the, the only last point that I, I thought was interesting from this was um, Rogan brought up a uh, a news story about. Uh, the utilization of spent plutonium in batteries and, and utilizing diamonds and plutonium for long, long-term batteries. And, uh, and uh, Zian just basically said, keep in mind this is radioactive decay at what turns you into goo. So you're not going to put this in your watch. You're not going to have it in your car. You're going to have it at a fixed, secure location. Well, uh, they actually utilized in the past, I don't think it's done anymore, but they never had any real problems with it. They utilized plutonium in batteries for pacemakers. Mm. And there's uh, historical uh, sighting of these batteries lasting for 30 years. Oh, wow. They wanted a long-term battery that you didn't have to go literally into somebody's physical person to change out a battery for a pacemaker. So, um, you know, that technology maybe has some potential in the future. It's yeah. not gonna turn you into goo. All right. Uh, I wonder what John Champaglia has to say about all this. We might ask him. Uh, you know, other than that, uh, what, you know, let's 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 turn our attention over to John, uh, head of the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust. Justin, before we start the conversation, you know, what are you what what do you want to ask John? You know, this go around in our first episode of Going Nuclear. Well, I think you know, I think that the retail audience has um, a lot of questions. So. You know, the, the bulk of 2022 was spent in kind of a risk-off environment across markets, with a few exceptions. I think oil was really the big exception, and to some extent natural gas. Um, and commodities, I think, for the most part, performed pretty much the best in uh, in the year 2022. 
There was a huge amount of wealth that was destroyed last year. I mean, we're talking 40 plus trillion dollars, whether it's uh, you know lost in the market capitalization of uh, the ARK Innovation Fund and Facebook or Meta um, with the absolute implosion of multiple crypto exchanges. Um, it, it was kind of a bloodbath for a good part of the year for many markets. And that tend to pull multiple markets into that um, and uranium was one of them, you know, the uranium equities were one of them. So we had the commodity itself up 13% last year, while the equities underperformed the commodity by about 35%. We had uh, URNM, which is the Sprott Uranium Miners ETF down, I believe it was about 10% for the year last year, which all things considered was pretty darn okay. But the fact that uranium was actually up on the year and we had a spike in the price of uranium into the 60s, um, you know, $64 a pound, I think is where it peaked out in April. The fact that we hit that spike and then traded down in the spot price, it didn't really matter that it was up 13% on the year. It was down from the high print. And that's what retail looks at, right? Right, right. So the fact that uranium equities were sort of mired in this risk-off environment for most of the year, you had the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust trading at a discount to its net, net asset value for the vast majority of the time. Um, so I think the questions, you know, I, I, there's, there's questions I'd like to, let's say, represent the retail crowd with that have to do with um, um, what is he seeing out there right now? Why have we seen a, a shift? Uh, we've seen the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust trade at a premium to now for a couple of days uh, this month already in the first 10, 10 days of the, month, of the year. What has changed? Why is that? Uh, so that's kind of the big question I want to ask him. And, you know, it's it's an interesting vehicle. And, and I, I want to talk about the physical uh, uranium, uh, the uranium miners ETF as well, URNM, because I think that that, that Sput sort of uh, steals the show in terms, gets all the airtime because it's, it's, it's kind of the shiny object. And, you know, money flows into Sput and they buy uranium and it moves the whole sector when the spot price moves. But I want to know what's happening with the URNM ETF and um, and, and how, how his, uh, discussions with institutions are going now. Right. Well, uh, enough from you and me, I'm sure people here really want to hear from John. So, uh, let's take just a quick break here and then we'll return with John Champaglia of Sprott Physical Uranium Trust. Well, Trevor, we're uh, pleased to be joined here with John Champaglia, the CEO of Sprott. Uh, John and I have had uh, multiple engaging conversations over the last year and a half or so since the existence of the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, which took over Uranium Participation Corporation, I believe it was in July of 2021. Uh, the, the month following, Sprott initiated an ATM, an at-the-market financing vehicle, in August of 2021. Uh, quickly following that was a uh, spate of institutional buying high volume into the trust where uh, the physical uranium trust purchased, oh gosh, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head here, but it was something like 20 million pounds of uranium in, in three or four short months. They have since purchased 40, I believe it's 42 million pounds of uranium since August of 2021. 18 million pounds of that was last year in 2022. 
and uh, we're very pleased to be speaking with you today, John. How are you doing? Yeah, uh, thanks for having me. I've been um, I'm doing well. It's um, got a very busy 2023 ahead of me, and so I'm pretty excited about telling our story because um, it never ceases to amaze me how many people are still relatively relatively new to the story and are interested in the story. Um, I con I contrast that with probably where we were two years ago, and you probably couldn't even get a single meeting to talk about this topic. So, um, and I and I and I and I you know I'm I'm. I'm being a little sarcastic, but it's, 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 it was reality. I mean, it was very hard to get any institutional investor to talk to, to us about any commodity for that matter. Um, it was just not on the radar. And if you think about where the mindset was two years ago, it was 0% money around the world. Um, just about every kind of equity sector was performing very well. Bond market, you know, people made a lot of money on bonds and high yield and, and then don't even get me started with cryptos and, and all of all of that phony stuff. But uh, there were a lot of things working, and 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 commodities were just kind of left behind. And the world has had uh, a series of, of pretty serious wake-up calls in the last couple of years around how important commodities are uh, to the world economy and our day-to-day -day lives. And um, I also think they play a hugely important role uh, in terms of some really big picture objectives that the world is trying to achieve over the next 10 plus years. So um, people don't think about commodities and the role they play, whether that's, you know, what it, what it took to make my iPhone here or my computer or power my electricity right now. People just don't think about that stuff. And COVID, unfortunately, and, and, the, and the war in Ukraine have, have clearly opened up people's eyes around what is a supply chain? How does it, how do they work? Um, what happens when a supply chain gets disrupted? What happens when a supply of a commodity gets cut off? Um, and you've seen the impact, whether it's in the oil market, coal markets, uh, nat gas market, LNG, uranium market, obviously. Um, all these markets uh, work quite nicely when everything works well in the world and everyone's friends and, and just-in-time. The just-in-time inventory model um, you know, has, has led to incredible efficiencies, but when these systems get disrupted, we see really pronounced impacts in these commodity markets. And, and, and that, I think, has acted as a powerful catalyst for investors to say, uh, you know what, we've ignored a lot of these sectors for the better part of the last 10 to 12 years. We've underinvested. And when you underinvest in something that already has a 10 to 15 year lead time around development of, of new supply, you're really digging yourself into a big hole. And I, and I think the world has uh, unfortunately found out the hard way that um, you may have these you know, large ambitions to electrify, to uh, adopt more EVs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but if you don't have the underlying raw materials to implement these, uh, these, these policies and, and, and meet these objectives, you're, you're really stuck. So that I think is the interesting investment opportunity across a multitude of commodities because we will need to spend trillions of dollars uh, in the development and in, in not only primary production but also the processing and um, and the second part of it is that pro that production and processing has to happen in friendly jurisdictions to us so the idea of just you know offshoring 80 percent of a particular supply chain to a particular country I just don't think that that's going to be accepted anymore which is why you're seeing government policy and government action finally just support development of new mines on local local um, local soil, 
processing of these minerals, manufacturing of whatever it is, batteries. Um, and, and we see that obviously in spades when you talk about uranium. The conundrum we're in right now with the lack of conversion and enrichment capacity in the Western world um, you know, has really got the, the uranium sector still, I think, in a, in a nervous uh, state of being. John, uh, thanks so much for being our uh, first victim here on going nuclear. So appreciate it. But I, I do want to ask you, you know, looking back in the last two years, and the, the timing of all this has just been almost incredible. In fact, it seems like when when the physical uranium trust, when, when the when the takeover announced and, and, and Sput came active and, and, and the retail investors were, were fleeing into the equity, it almost it was like, you know, your tide lifted all boats. We saw the spot price of uranium really gain traction quite quickly. We even saw peers and equities in the exploration and uh, production, uranium production equities really take off as well. Um, you know, talk about the timing and all this. I mean, in, in the creativity behind this trust that really helped the, in, the entire uranium sector kind of be on, back in the forefront of not only resource speculators, but also just people generally interested in how we get to the next level of, uh, you know, an energy renaissance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, um, I think the trust simply acted as a catalyst, a well-timed catalyst, um, I might say, in terms of its introduction to the marketplace. You know, the reality is UPC had been in the marketplace for almost 16 years prior to our acquisition of that vehicle. So there has been a vehicle in the marketplace for a long time, and, and obviously there's another UK-listed vehicle that's been in the marketplace for about five years. But I think some of the enhancements that we made with the vehicle and the approach we took, um, and the approach we took is very simple. It's a very shareholder-friendly, shareholder-first approach. It's a very transparent approach. And I think that level of transparency um, was very welcome in a very opaque market. Um, the uranium market is still very opaque. Um, it still uh, has its days that I get very frustrated with it because of the way it operates. And while it has improved markedly since our entrance, I think you know we've done our share in terms of helping with liquidity activity and price discovery, which a lot of market participants who had been following the space long before we arrived told us on very in the very you know right after the press release um, in, 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 in I believe it was May of 2021 said you know we really want you guys to try to help improve um, some of these elements of the of the uranium spot market and um, so I think the vehicle was well well designed and structured it really um, encompassed you know, our, at the time, 12 plus years experience running these physical commodity funds for hundreds of thousands of people around the world. So it really took the essence of what we've learned and applied it to another commodity at a time when the stars just started to align um, in terms of news flow, finally, you know, getting this this market out of its uh, long protracted bear, bear uh, state. So, you know, I can't say we... We, we can take total credit for perfect timing because the truth is we've been working on this idea since 2018 and um, we stuck to it um, for multiple years because we felt very 
very strongly that the market was going to eventually turn and that we had a role to play in that turn in terms of bringing a, a more shareholder transparent vehicle to market. Um, unfortunately, it wasn't possible to bring the, a, a vehicle to market in 2018 or 2019 or 2020 for that matter because the market was still very entrenched um, in, in its bare state. And uh, even though we tried multiple avenues to try to come to market, we just did not feel confident that the time was right. So I'm, you know, I'm very pleased the timing worked out and that our persistence and patient, uh, patience really did pay off. Sprott's always been a powerful entity within the resource and commodity space. And uh, you mentioned a little, I, th I think you mentioned responsibility. I kept on thinking of that, like uh, Spider-Man saying, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. I, does Sput feel a little bit more responsibility with what happens in this sector going forward? Well, listen, we, we, we take our fiduciary duty incredibly, um, uh, you know, we take it very seriously. I mean, we, we are a small boutique firm. Uh, operating amongst giants, you know, and giants in our field are multi-trillion-dollar asset managers. So we're we're just a speck compared to them. So our reputation and credibility is paramount, and our ability to compete effectively in the marketplace against these giants. And and we've been able to do that, and we've we've done that on the back of of, of doing what we said we we're going to be doing, being very transparent. And really focusing on our shareholders, whether that's the way we run our funds or way, the way we respond. Um, my team, I, I give them credit and feedback all the time that when institutional investors call us or email us, it's amazing how quickly we respond. And I often get the first response I get from that, that incoming party is, wow, thank you for getting back to me so quickly. We care. We care about our clients. We care about our, our prospective clients. We care about how these funds are operated, how they operate and how they perform. Um, and I think that's that's been the secret to our success. So, you know, we laid out a plan in 2021 around how we were going to change the vehicle, how we thought we could improve it. And step by step, we executed on that. And I think we built a lot of credibility. At the end of the day, all we do is we're an expression of investor interest. So... Uh, we don't we don't control we don't control the uranium market. We don't control investor buying and selling activity. Uh, it's a free market, but when they do want to express their view, the trust is there for them to get involved in. And when they express their view, and if we're able to raise new capital on a creative basis, then our job is to 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 try to um, put that capital to work um, and buy more uranium. And as Justin said at the beginning, you now we started. Uh, at 18.1 million pounds of U308, and we're just shy of 60 million. So we've been incredibly busy, and yes, there's been there were periods of, of uh, intense activity, and then there were there have been multi-month lags, and, and you know from May to the end of August, it was incredibly quiet, um, and that wasn't because the uranium market was quiet. That was because the worldwide investment market was quiet. You know, everybody was on the sidelines running for cover, uh, dealing with a much higher interest rate environment and, and, and very extreme inflation that the Fed uh, miscalculated, uh, along with other central banks. And so I do feel as though, um, you know, markets, market sentiment is changing. Uh, the fundamentals have never been better. I mean, Justin has been a long time uh, watcher of, of this sector much longer than myself and 
you know, when, when he says um, the fundamentals have never been better, I mean, he's just not, he's not making this stuff up. It's, it's true. Uh, there are so many things happening right now that you could have never have wished for as a uranium investor 12 months or 24 months ago. Um, I think the challenge has been people are asking, well, okay, if everything is so wonderful on the fundamentals, why, why have the stocks been so challenging last year? Or why hasn't the price of uranium gone up? more than we, we, we thought it would on the back of the fundamentals. And I think, you know, I, I, my, my, you know my, from my perspective, you know, natural resource markets and commodity markets um, are very cyclical, they're very volatile, and they have a way of shaking people out at the worst possible time. So you have to be um, prepared for that volatility. You have to try to benefit from it because there are trading opportunities as well. We often talk to institutions uh, who say to us, look, you know, we know it's volatile. Um, we believe the up, the trend is going to be up. We don't know how much and how long, but you know, we're happy to kind of trade back and forth as, as the, as the sector zigs and zags. And, you know, I had an incoming call from a very prominent New York hedge fund, uh, last week that said, um, Hey, I just want to let you know, we're now a top 10 holder in spot. And I was like, really? And, um, you know, and because I don't have transparency around these things. Yes, I did. I did meet that individual in New York City back in September on a road show. But, you know, institutions don't tell you everything in terms of what they're doing. Um, so it's great to to see investors like that saw this, the weakness, uh, the weakness in the market towards the end of last year and use that as a buying opportunity. So, you know, we love investors that obviously um, help us tighten the discount and, and the vehicle obviously traded at a, at a, a much wider discount that we like to see uh, over the summer and, and early fall, and um, you know that's 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 something we try to focus on. And you know what we try to do is find the institutional investors that love to buy the trust when it's at a discount. They've got a long-term positive view on the fund, and if they can buy uranium at an implied value of forty-three dollars. They love doing that. We have other we have other investors that are the absolute opposite. They will only buy the fund at a premium, and um, and the reason for that, which is you know which I've asked them many times, is that they only want to buy the vehicle at a premium so they can give us cash to put to work to to buy more physical uranium with. I there is clearly a role for both sets of investors. They both have a role to play throughout the cycle. So we try to identify those value guys to help tighten up um, the fund when it's at a discount. And we obviously, you know, we, we, we know the guys that like to buy the fund um, when it's trading at a premium and, and they want to they utilize the ATM. I think you make uh, a really interesting point, John, about um, <clears throat> conversations around this topic and how that's shifted in, in two short years. and. I can I can confirm that anecdotally, even from you know dinner party conversations two years ago, the question posed to me of you know oh, so what do you do, uh, would would have a vastly different response from today. Um, so now I'm finding even even just random meetings with strangers. Uh, in engaging conversations about energy and about nuclear, mm -hmm. and that absolutely didn't happen a couple of years ago. Um, and I know that you know since the since the the launching of the of the physical uranium trust, 
you spent a lot of time traveling around and talking with institutional investors. And um, to your point about <clears throat> the discount to NAV getting pretty wide a few times, you know, it's really interesting. The sector is so small that uh, I know for a fact last year on more than one occasion, we had a situation where a fund was getting essentially margin called or blowing up from various other holdings in their book and had to sell down some of the uranium holdings. And that moved the whole sector down. And then, of course, you see the retail Twitter crying about it. And uh, and I, I don't I don't mean to poke fun at that, but um, it's just it, it, it can take a single fund um, dumping a part of their position that will move the whole sector down. And I know that it doesn't take a whole lot of money to move it in the opposite direction to the upside. So, you know, that risk off environment we were in for a good part of last year affected our sector as well. Even though, like you said, the fundamentals continue to improve. I do think that the Zaporizhia power plant scare was and possibly still is, although definitely not to the extent of the middle of last year, a bit of a wet blanket on the sector. Even though anybody who understands, you know, even uh, a modicum of nuclear engineering or how nuclear power plants operate know that Chernobyl Part 2 was never on the table. Um, we were never going to see an explosion and a nuclear bomb type event coming from that nuclear power plant. But those were the headlines and it certainly affected sentiment for a minute. But aside from that, fundamentals continued to improve um, week over week last year. And the equities were just mired in this risk-off environment influenced by the broad market and various, you know, the tech sector, and the crypto sector, whatever it might be. And that, of course, affected the way that the spot trust was trading. Um, you know, we had, for the, for example, the month of December, every single day of that month at a discount to now, uh, you weren't able to raise any cash by any pounds. Um, and the bulk of the months prior to that were mostly at a discount to now with a few short exceptions. Now, this year, um, we're recording this on January 12th here, um, we've already seen, I think, two or three days at a premium to NAV. So I'm curious, I guess this is a multi-pointed question. What has changed uh, starting off this year so far besides just sentiment? And how are your conversations going now when you're talking to institutions? Um, I recall a conversation with you in the past you know, where, where you were talking with some, some money managers that had assets under management in the uh, tens, if not hundreds of billions that were were and are aware of the thesis, and they just can't touch anything in the sector due to liquidity restraints. So how are your conversations going now with institutional investors? Um, obviously, compared to the past, I would argue that they probably are improving simply due to the conversations around energy and commodities being um, a increasingly accepted uh, uh, long thesis across the commodity space for this decade in an inflation area environment especially. But how are these conversations going and what has changed now versus, let's say, 18 months ago in terms of sentiment around the trust? Mm -hmm. Well, um, you know, I would say in the last in the last uh, couple weeks, you know, it's uh, new year, new start, new perspective. Um, you know, we've been able to tighten up the discount and, and you know, clearly, I think we've been able to um, attract some new institutions. And, I, you know, I, I'm not at liberty to tell you exactly who, but, um, you know, some of these institutional conversations that we have, they take six months, you know, there's a six month dialogue with them on and off. And, um, and then they call you up one day and they say, okay, we're going to start buying. And just, you know, as a courtesy, they let us know they're going to start buying. So, um, 
you know, I know there's there were some new institutions that that uh, towards the end of the year stepped in and and, and helped tighten that discount. Um, but it has been a challenge. I mean, one of the things that's been uh, weighing us down is obviously many of the uranium mining ETFs around the world have been in net redemptions over the last few months, and as they you know, destroy shares, they are forced sellers of spot and all the, and all the underlying holdings. So, you know, one thing you need to know about ETFs, um, when they do, when they do a redemption or a creation, they are completely price insensitive. They just dump and they just buy and they buy. And they often do that, uh, literally in the last 10 minutes of the market through, you know, market on close type of orders. It's the most, uh, sloppy kind of trading you can imagine. So we, we do sometimes see uh, impacts, outsized impacts that, you know, are short term uh, when the ETFs are, are being forced to rebalance or, or you know, uh, redeem shares. So there's been a bit of that overhang. And I'm hoping that's, that, a, um, that's a really good point. Yeah, yeah, the redemptions on balance, there's been far more redemptions than share issuance over the last three to four months, especially. And and to, to say that that trading is sloppy is an understatement. But please. Oh, it's <laughs> it's um, so when we reach out to many of these ETF trading shops and say, uh, you know, because we know they're going to be either trying to buy spot or, or, or redeem spot or whatever on rebalances. And we try to work with them. The, the response is, look, I don't care what the fill is. All I, all I care about is a tracking error. So when you think about having to dump shares within the last five minutes or 10 minutes before close, or, or on the flip side, when they're doing creations, um, you know, they can have outsized impact. So when you think about that creation redemption mechanic, um, particularly on some of these small cap stocks, um, it, when you're already in a bad macro environment and a, and a reduced liquidity environment and ETFs are doing these rebalancings or creation redemptions, you can see how they can have short term, um, you know, impacts on, on some of the, the valuations of these stocks. So now I've worked really hard to try to get spot integrated into almost every index fund in the world. Uh, um, and, um, you know, it's, it's obviously back in the global X fund. It's, it's in our, it's in the North Shore Index. Um, uh, it's it's in the Beta Shares Uranium uh, Fund in Australia. So I mean, it's uh, we've done our job trying to explain people why a closed end fund uh, should be should be considered for uh, inclusion into an equity type of index. So uh, so, but you know, it works both ways. When the money's coming in, you're a beneficiary. When the money's coming out, you've got selling pressure. But um, I think what we're where we are right now with institutions is 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 kind of a state of sitting on their hands. We don't see a lot of institutional selling pressure uh, amongst spot shareholders. We see the odd one that we believe has been a forced seller, as you mentioned, around margin calls related to the broader issues within their funds. Uh, we definitely had that happen in in the last quarter last year. But um, for the most part, people are sitting on their hands, and and the reason is. What is the catalyst for you to change your position? Are the fundamentals deteriorating? No, they're getting better. So that's not a reason to sell. Um, is the price appreciated? So taking profits? No, the price is just kind of range bound. So we don't really see a catalyst um, uh, that would prompt a lot of institutions to sell their shares. A lot of institutions have said to me, hey, it's one, one of the few things that have worked out in my portfolio last year. 
um, you know, maybe the fund was up six or eight percent or whatever for them, but you know, they had a whole lot of stuff that was down 20 or 30 or 40. So, uh, people don't generally like to sell their winners. Um, so I think we're just kind of in the state, you know, we're kind of a, a range bound state right now. Now do, on the flip side, do, do we see a lot of institutional buying interest right now? No, we don't. We don't. Um, it's not there yet. We're not in a macro market equity market environment that makes these guys feel like there isn't another shoe to drop. There's still this overhang of, um, is the Fed going to pull the carpet from underneath uh, underneath our feet and are we going to have another downturn? Um, I talk to hedge funds all the time. Some of them are 80% cash right now. Some of them were, were short for uh, chunks of last year and, and covered a lot of positions and, and, and did okay. Um, I think we need to get, we need to, uh, get to the point where people are feeling better about monetary policy, uh, before I think money starts coming back into the market as a whole. So it's not a uranium specific, uh, issue. It's just a broader market issue that I think is the challenge. Now going forward, uh, over the next few months, um, I've got a very busy travel schedule. Um, I'm actually going to be heading to Brazil at the end of the month and doing my first uh, road trip in person there. Uh, a lot of interest in in um, uranium in Brazil amongst family offices and hedge funds. Believe it or not, a lot of you know it's a very commodity centric investment community there. So I'm looking forward to that. And then the the normal uh, course of uh, uh, you know broker dealer sponsored mining conferences are kicking off. Uh, with TD at the end of January, uh, Bank of Montreal is going to be at the end of February, Bank of America is in May. So um, I'll be going to all these conferences, I'll be meeting with investors, I'll be on panels, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and, uh, you know, again, I try to focus on what I can control. Can't control the Fed, can't control the Iranian market, but I can control education and, and, uh, and marketing. So that, that's what we like to do. John, 2022 was obviously quite an interesting and pivotal year. The uranium sector, for simplistic terms, almost felt it was two steps forward, one step back uh, most of the year. And two steps forward, meaning, you know, obviously sentiment improving uh, and a number of uh, developed countries and even, you know, uh, developing countries made decisions to backtrack on some, you know, closing down some of their nuclear reactors and keeping keeping those lives of uh, those reactors going. Uh, the one step back, obviously, you mentioned the macro factors, the monetary policy factors, but we're also seeing other energy costs coming down since those peaks, oil and natural gas coming down. You know, is, is, there, a, is there competition amongst the other energy producing commodities such as oil and gas here that nuclear has to compete with in order to maybe make it three steps forward and one step back? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, if you think about um, in the United States, well, which still has the largest fleet of nuclear reactors, you know, when we had this, when we had the shale boom and, you know, fracking technology was being developed and we were awash in natural gas, very cheap natural gas. If you think about the cost advantage that provided a nat gas power plant against a nuclear power plant, um, you know, nuclear was at a disadvantage when you had that era of incredibly abundant and cheap natural gas. If you think about its other competitor, uh, which were our renewables, 
you know, between all the different subsidies and tax credits and carbon credit tax, you know, carbon credits, et cetera, et cetera, that that sector has has received to incent its build out over the last 30 years. Um, that also put nuclear on a unlevel playing field in terms of its ability to compete in electricity markets. Um, you know, and, and then the third thing that people often forget about is coal. I mean, coal, for a long time, the price was just stuck going sideways. If you think about where we are today against all the competing energy forms, um, you know, shale boom is kind of dying down. Uh, natural gas prices are higher around the world. There's incentives to liquefy natural gas and ship it all around the world now. Um, coal prices have gone up significantly as well. And now all of a sudden, nuclear has different incentives coming from, you know, the Department of Energy through the Inflation Reduction Act that will allow it to compete more effectively with renewables and that gas for electricity production. So I often describe it as coming out of the penalty box or just simply being put on a level playing field. And I think, um, you know, I have to think that if I was running a nuclear, if I was a utility running a nuclear power plant, uh, you're probably making a ton of money right now um, generating electricity. And you're probably feeling a whole lot better that um, uh, government isn't going to pull the plug on your plant or that environmentalists are going to, you know, blockade your plant because right now they're focused on blockading coal plants um, and uh, new coal mines in Germany. Um, so I, I, I think that as you feel better about the prospects for your operation, you think very differently about big capital decisions. You think differently about procuring fuel. And I think one of the biggest advantages we have in the sector is time. And I say that because uh, while utilities always have a couple years of inventory on hand, every month it gets smaller unless you're procuring to buy more. And if you're running down your inventory and you feel better about the prices you're getting for your business and you're feeling better about how long your power plant may be operating, um, you're going to start to finally get off your hands and start to procure. 18 months ago or two years ago, if you think about what was the urgency for utilities to buy more uranium longer term, there was none. The price meandered around 20 to 30 bucks for, for years. There was lots of material available. There was no disruption from Russia around services. Um, what created the what created the urgency for you 18 months ago? The, I really don't think there was one. The world is completely flipped around now, obviously, with, with Russia being, uh, with everyone trying to transition away from the Russian services and the price of uranium going, obviously, up 20-plus dollars in the spot market and, obviously, the price of conversion in Richmond have, have gone up even more. And then I think about the supply response. And yes, we've starting, we're starting to see a supply response. It was, you know, not quite a year ago when Cameco announced that MacArthur River was finally coming back online. But, you know, even, even almost a year later, um, it's only going to, it's only, uh, like last year, only produced a few million pounds. And it's going to take them probably another year to, to ramp up to target. So, you know, you look at some of these other mines that are reopening, you know, the, you know, whether they're in Australia or Africa, and you look at the numbers, it's like, okay, uh, 800,000 pounds are coming next year, or 1.2 or 2, 2 million pounds in two years from now. That's not really moving the needle a whole lot in terms of closing the, s the supply deficit. 
you know, I think we need to find tens of millions of pounds to, to really close that gap. And um, given how long the sector was on ice, um, there's a big lag. There's a mismatch, right? Mismatch of how long it will take um, to procure and, 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 to, and to when you ultimately need that fuel and how long it takes to actually pull out of the ground. And does, does it does it make sorry to interrupt, but does it create mm-hmm. an urgency for uh, you know a, a belt such as the Athabasca Basin to really get going? And you know, m- there's so many of those uranium equities and projects and companies up there that are obviously drilling the hell out of their deposits and showing really good returns. Uh, and we know there's pounds in the ground there, but. The, the government in some ways got to be able to let these companies make that next step into green lighting, the actual pro- development production and actually, uh, you know, building these damn things to supply to North American uranium supply. I mean, doesn't that need to happen sooner rather than later? We keep on talking about time mm-hmm. here. Justin and I were talking about time in the first segment, but I mean, that, that's the next likely step, isn't it? Yeah. I think governments around the world have, realize the urgency of, of, of helping to facilitate and, and expedite some of the approvals for not just primary production of critical minerals, not just uranium, all kinds of minerals, as well as processing of those minerals onshore. Um, and, and where I live in Canada, our government's finally kind of woken up and said, yeah, particularly for uh, critical minerals related to, to um, uh, EV batteries, they need to uh, support and expedite some of these approval processes for new lithium mines, nickel mines, etc. So um, I do think that governments need to kind of speed it up a little bit. There is more of an urgency that's that's forming because you know if you look at if you look at what's going on right now with in the U.S. and the U.K., what are they all trying to do? Well, they're trying to like ramp up conversion and enrichment capacity. Why? Because those are the two parts that are most susceptible to disruption from Russia. So um, when the governments finally, you know, get off their asses and, and start making these difficult decisions, uh, I think it's a really good sign that, that, that somebody's poked the bear and, and things are finally moving. Um, I think what we're looking for in the next one to two years is the conversion capacity to come back online because the conversion capacity is really the primary bottleneck right now. And once that conversion capacity is on board, that's when the overfeeding can really accelerate. You, you can't really accelerate overfeeding until the conversion capacity is there. Conversion capacity is not there. It will come, but, um, you know, Converdine is still on track to o- reopen in April uh, from, based on my last update. So we think that's an important item to watch for in 2023 is the restart of that facility. The other facility that you've probably been talking about is the Springfield facility um, in the UK. Um, f- from what I've been told, it's uh, up to two-year uh, two-year timeline to reopen open the, 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 the conversion facility there, and it's going to require a pretty sizable investment of capital. You may have you may have seen the UK government awarded a, a contract to Westinghouse to essentially assess you know how they can do that and, and what timeline. So. Uh, governments getting involved in the conversion market tells you that they want to try to alleviate this bottleneck risk. 
I mean, let's face it, governments don't want to get involved in most markets. Um, they only get involved in markets when they see a risk. And that risk is either, uh, you know, energy security or national security or, or whatever. But um, governments, for the most part, really don't want to do anything. So the fact that they're intervening in these markets, like they have in the oil market, tells you they're concerned about something. They're too and, late. They uh, usually get involved when it's too late. <laughs> yes, unfortunately, you're right. The horse is usually out of the barn running away, and they're trying to catch up. Um, but I think it's important that they're finally moving and recognizing the issue. Um, and I think as those facilities get turned on, um, we will see more overfeeding. From what I've heard from the from you know the recent uh, WNA working group conference that just happened in London this week, the consensus is that the demand scenarios that the industry the working groups um, debate, uh, the consensus is that the demand scenario is clearly going up, um, and you know every life extension, every restart, every new build that just adds to the future pile that's going to be required. On the supply side, which I talked about a little bit, yeah, we're seeing some we're seeing some supply responses, but they're all pretty small, and they're all taking one to two years to kind of ramp up. Um, secondary supply is not what it used to be, um, partly because uh, people aren't selling the secondary supply that they had, partly because the uranium trust and other vehicles and hedge funds have purchased a lot of physical material over the last year and a half. So we don't see the we don't see the secondary supply available like like we used to. Um, we also don't see producers saying to us, "Hey, um, what are your buying plans this year? Or do you think you'll be buying material from us?" The reality is they don't have any material to sell us. It's all been spoken for hmm. uh, through other, the different contracts. So we don't see a lot of material coming to the spot market from producers. It's earmarked for utilities. And because they've been under this supply discipline model for so long, there's no excess coming to the market other than, you know, the traditional sources of offtake um, that, you know, each month comes into the market. So we, we, we see the market is, is still being fairly tight. Um, and when it's tight, obviously, you can, you can get these, these, these spikes and you can get periods of volatility. Um, but it really, it, really has, it really comes down to the macro environment improving and investors feeling that they can get back into the pool. John, I, thanks so much for your time here. And just for time's sake, I think we need to start wrapping up. I do have kind of a off the cuff question for you. I wanted to get your thoughts. I saw uh, next gen is the uh, Vancouver Canucks helmet sponsor. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't know. I. I, I don't. I don't. You know. I, I'm not. I'm not a huge hockey guy, as most people will understand. But I do kind of follow it, even though the Avalanche, yeah. uh, you know, did hoist the Stanley Cup. Uh, but actually, I, I had a laugh because it's like, oh, that's that's. I don't know if I like like that or if I think you know that obviously was a very expensive purchase. <laughs> you know, but what about uh, what about Sput? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that's. Uh, I don't know if that would be a good investment. Uh... I often, I often joke about uh, when a corporate, uh, when a company makes the decision to sponsor like a stadium, like NFL or NHL, it, I don't know, I, re I once read this stat that like, usually the company's out of business like a few years later. It's, it's just like, <laughs> it's, it's honestly, it's like a state of hubris when they've got so much money and they eventually blow their brains out. Um, 
So I, I think it's a bad omen if you sponsor a sports stadium. Your company is probably going to be in financial trouble in the future. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> was it crypto? Uh, crypto.com stadium? I can't remember what stadium. Yeah, yeah, all those kinds of things. Yeah, actually, FTX, I don't know if you realize, but FTX had their logo on all the umpires' shirts for the Major League Baseball. Yeah. Actually, yeah, so I, will, I, I will say Rio Tinto sponsored the uh, Seattle, or not, excuse me, the, the Salt Lake uh, soccer, MLS soccer club. They're, Rio Tinto's obviously not going anywhere, but I yeah, don't think it's Rio Tinto like Stadium it. anymore. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time, John. It's great to catch up with you. Thanks for having me on, guys. And uh, I'm, looking forward to, I'm looking forward to a good year for Uranium. I mean, um, as I said, the fundamentals look great market conditions look good and uh we just have to kind of get through this overhang of of risk off yeah thanks uh thanks for being the uh, uh first victim in the going nuclear interview chair uh you, you handled it well i think uh you know people are going to listen and be like oh that wasn't so bad justin and trevor no you guys are you guys are great i really appreciate it all right thank you john have yourself a great rest of your week Thanks, you too. The information presented should not be considered investment advice. Going Nuclear, Justin, or myself, and the Clear Commodity Network team and its affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein. Please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decisions.